History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and today we're back to the narrative in episode 78, Robe and Dagger. Before launching into things, I do want to remind everyone of two things. One, the History of Persia merch store is up and running. Thank you so much to everyone who has already bought t-shirts and hoodies and stickers already. You can find that on the website by clicking on the store tab at historyofpersiapodcast.com. Two, the summer sticker giveaway on Patreon is still going. New patrons who join any tier before September 21st will get a sticker that says, in rough translation, the history of Persia in Old Persian cuneiform as a free gift. Once again, thank you to anybody who has already done this. But anyway, long time, no speak. It's been way too long since we had a good narrative run, which ended back in episode 74, so let's do some recap. So far, we've killed Darius II like three times. Most recently, we covered events in Egypt, Under Darius II, the kingdom of the two lands remained remarkably quiet even as the rest of the empire was in turmoil. It was so peaceful that the satrap Arsimes was even able to take a sabbatical in the imperial core just to help dismantle the private land management bankers of Babylon, and then transfer all of their wealth and power back to the nobility. The tranquil waters of the Nile were only disturbed by a conflict between the native Egyptians, 
and the Judean garrison on the island of Elephantine, way down near the Nubian border. The Egyptians destroyed a Jewish temple, but ultimately, the other satraps helped convince Arsimis to recognize the Jewish claim on their land and provide funds to rebuild. Before that, we followed the Ionian War. As the Peloponnesian War ramped back up in Greece, the satraps of Anatolia made one strategic alliance with Sparta and her allies. The Peloponnesian League would provide the fleet to wage war against Athens in Asia and pull the Greek cities of the east away from the Delian League. Persia would pay the bills and keep the territory. There were ups and downs, especially as Tissaphernes, the satrap of Lydia, kept one foot out of the water when it came to actually supporting the Spartan fleet. Ultimately, King Darius realized that for royal goals to prevail, royal supervision was necessary. He demoted Tissaphernes and sent in his young son Cyrus, a 16-year-old prodigy to oversee the war effort. The prince became the Keranos, the supreme military governor in the west with authority over Lydia, Phrygia, and Cappadocia at a minimum, and possibly further power over Armenia as time went on. While Cyrus never led troops in battle, he proved to be a powerful administrator and provided the means and the strategy for Sparta to defeat Athens with an unconditional surrender. And before that, we talked about the various internal conflicts of the Western Empire. There were rebellions in Media, Assyria, Lydia, and Armenia, and they plagued the reign of Darius II from start to finish almost all characterized by family drama. Whether it was war between brothers brought on by the death of Artaxerxes I, or the endless fallout of the Hidarnid clan's fall from grace, the whole royal family was embroiled. Darius needed to be more secure. Queen Parasatis wanted revenge on the Hidarnids for killing her daughter. Prince Arsaces wanted to stop his mother's minor genocide because his wife was a Hidarnid. And ultimately, everyone went to bed angry and nursing a grudge. Surprisingly, the rebellion in Media is only briefly mentioned by Xenophon, with no elaboration. Then the king fell ill sometime in late 405 or early 404. As his ailment progressed, he found himself stuck in Babylon as still more rebellions broke out. Fortunately, these were minor concerns. The Libyans of the Egyptian marshes were long overdue for violence anyway, and his forefathers had seen to it that they were all but powerless. Meanwhile, the Caduceans, at the Caucasian fringe of the empire, had stopped paying tribute. This was a minor tribe, only even concerning because of their proximity to media. So as it became clear that he was on his deathbed, Darius summoned Cyrus back from Lydia to present for the funeral arrangements and to bring his troops to face the Caduceans. Everything about Cyrus the Younger's history seems to indicate that he took pleasure in court protocols. In an outburst, he had his cousins executed for minor violations in Anatolia, and we'll see more evidence later, but it also
also seems like he broke protocol and raced to media with haste after hearing about his father's condition. Whether he did this by marching on the Caduceans first and moving at military speed, or simply by rushing along the royal road, we don't know. Either way, Cyrus managed to reach Babylon while his father was still clinging to life. And you can judge whether or not that was a good thing in the long run. As the king's body began shutting down, everyone around him was embroiled in cloak and dagger as the empire hadn't seen in a generation or more. Darius had effectively pruned the various branches of the Achaemenid family tree early in his reign, but even before he was finished with his gardening, the vines had started to spread once again. Of his four sons, only the eldest, Arsaces, was a full adult in Persian eyes, and for the last 20 years, Arsaces had been the presumptive heir to the throne with no real competition. To his credit, Darius himself still presumed this and insisted on that until the end. But all was not well in the royal family. Ever since that drama with the Hidarnid family in Armenia, covered in detail in episode 70, trouble had been brewing. With Ctesias having a personal preference for personal stories, it's impossible to tell exactly what happened. But what we do know is that it sparked a feud between Parisadas and her own son. Probably as a reward for her father's support in the power struggle of 424 BCE, Darius had Arsaces marry Statera, daughter of Hidarnes. Meanwhile, her brother Teratukmes married and later murdered Roxane, a daughter of Darius II. When her brothers revolted, Statera remained loyal to her husband and the Achaemenid family, but Parisadis wanted to execute every Hidarnid she could lay her hands on, and was all set to kill her own daughter-in-law before Arsaces appealed to Darius and the king ordered his wife to stand down. To Parisadis, this was a cruel insult. She had lost her daughter and had her replaced by someone she saw as party to the murder. Animosity grew between the two most powerful dukeshish in the empire, and by extension between mother and son. It's not hard to imagine the insult was added to injury, because Statera was similar to Roxane in a way. Roxane is noted by Ctesias as a woman warrior who rode and killed in the hunt with the best of the noble archers. Statera is noted by Plutarch for always riding with the carriage curtains open in order to be seen by her people and interact with them. In traditional Achaemenid society, and frankly most society for thousands of years in either direction, these were both masculine roles. In the Achaemenid period, there was an added layer where social prestige was set by keeping one's distance from the public, something women traditionally could do more than men on account of the men's more political and military duties. Even the king, often noted for ruling in near seclusion, would ride out in the open to be seen by and interact with peasants and merchants on some occasions. 
It's hard to know how alike the late Roxane and Statera were, but there might be something there. It's far too limited a sample size, but also all of the data we actually have. By the same token, I personally wonder if there might have been a generational divide at work here too. Were young Persian noblewomen of the late 5th century challenging gender roles or seeking to be more active in social participation? Who knows, it's clearly not helped by the poor data we have for the following century. On the other hand, Perisatis utterly adored her second son. Cyrus was, in many ways, the perfect prince, a prodigy, and according to both Perisatis and royal precedent, the only legitimate heir to the throne, regardless of his young age. In his last days, as Cyrus's procession raced toward Babylon, Darius was visited by Perisatis repeatedly, not to comfort her dying husband and half-brother, but to intercede on Cyrus's behalf and beg Darius to name him heir to the throne. It's the one instance where Darius II completely breaks with the example of Darius I. Perisatis argued that Darius the Great had named Xerxes, his third son, as heir to the throne because he was the firstborn after the original Darius became king. Thus, the grandsons of Gabrius were considered less legitimate. We don't have any actual evidence that there was a copy there, but I like to imagine Perisatis frantically waving at a copy of Xerxes' harem inscription on the palace wall. Darius refused her each time, and our sources don't say why, but the argument is easy to imagine. Practically, Cyrus was just very young, whereas Arsaces had decades of preparation. Cyrus had proven himself as a financier and a strategist, but was not truly a ruler of Anatolia. But speaking of Anatolia, after the funeral, the prodigy prince could go back to Sardis and get some experience while continuing to rule as Keranos. Ideologically, timing was not the only difference in the succession from Darius to Xerxes and the current dilemma. Yes, Xerxes was more legitimate than his older half-brothers because he was born after Darius became king, but he was also born after Darius I became a royal of any type. Xerxes could also trace his lineage back to Cyrus the Great through his mother, while his brothers could not. Middle child, son of a concubine or no, Darius II had always been a prince able to trace his ancestry back to Cyrus, and more importantly, in 424, back to Achaemenes on his father's side the side with traditional inheritance rights. Thus, Arsaces was already a perfectly legitimate heir. Cyrus arrived, perhaps surprised or dismayed to discover that his mother had not secured the throne for him. His brother would still be king. As with Darius's accession, we are able to pinpoint his death with some accuracy thanks to Babylonian records. Sometime in the first week of April 404 BCE. Whatever the illness was, Darius II died. 
He was somewhere between 50 and 58 years old, and it had been the great king, the mighty king, king of Persia, king of all lands, possibly the pharaoh Menekib, and king of kings, Kashayathia Kashayathianam, for 19 years, 3 months, and 2 weeks. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Plans were immediately put into motion for the funeral procession to pack up in Babylon and head for Persia, where they would first stop at Persepolis to inter Darius's body in his tomb, completed or at least complete enough on the rocky cliffs of Nakshe Rostam alongside his father, grandfather, and namesake great-grandfather. From there, the court would make their way around to the next valley, and Cyrus's original palace at Pasargadai for the formal coronation. But for the purposes of clerical records in Babylon and Egypt, there was no legal interregnum. Just as Ochus became Darius II in Babylon immediately after the death of Artaxerxes I, Arsaces now became King Artaxerxes II. Just like when Darius II came to power, there's a bunch of interesting details hiding in the choice of regnal name. According to Plutarch, Artaxerxes II initially wanted to emulate his namesake as a generous and peacemaking king. 
Darius's reign had been marked by incessant conflict in the West, just like Xerxes before him, and in both cases, King Artaxerxes would put a stop to that and focus on building up Persia and its people. But there's another dimension as well. By declaring himself Artaxerxes, the new king provided the old king with some post-mortem legitimacy. When Darius II became king in episode 69, I explained how and why that may have been the first Persian regnal name. It was at least partially to legitimize Ochus, a younger and only half-Persian prince, as being like Darius the Great. You know, saying, look, did Darius need perfect royal heritage to be great? No, trust in that name again. This time, Artaxerxes II was emulating a tradition in the Persian nobility. The firstborn grandson of the firstborn son was traditionally named after his grandfather. We actually see this in the royal family, even though only a few of them have made it to the throne. Cyrus I, king of Anshan, grandfather to Cyrus the Great. Cambyses I, king of Anshan, grandfather of Cambyses, the conqueror of Egypt. Darius the Great, grandfather of Darius, who was assassinated by Artabanus in 465. Xerxes I, grandfather of Xerxes II, who was assassinated by Sogdianus and Darius II. Knowing absolutely nothing about Xerxes II, we can't tell if the trend continued. But by becoming Artaxerxes II, Arsaces was subtly rewriting history to say that his father was the true heir to the throne. But before going through the formal transition process, I want to spend some time on our sources, because from this moment forward for a few episodes, there is just a flood of information. The Roman writer Plutarch's Life of Artaxerxes is one of just two biographies of Persian individuals from antiquity. And though short, it is substantially longer than the other example. Plutarch and I might disagree on his assessment of Herodotus, but it cannot be denied that Plutarch was one of antiquity's great researchers. His presentation of various sources, comparisons, and assessment of their value is almost modern. He's also invaluable as a source for what largely or entirely lost historians wrote about, since many of his sources no longer exist. Darius II's body moved slowly along the road from Babylon to Susa to Persepolis, preserved in wax and Egyptian embalming techniques according to Persian tradition. The late king was deposited in the final tomb of Nakshirostam, the mountainside was only so big, and had only ever had enough room for four or five tombs in the style of Darius the Great's. And even then, Artaxerxes I's tomb is kind of around the corner from the others. Artaxerxes II would need a new royal acropolis, but first he needed to make it official and become king of kings in full regalia. This is the story where Plutarch actually explains the coronation ceremony. He is the only source to do so, by saying, 
Here there is a sanctuary of a warlike goddess whom one might conjecture to be Athena. Into this sanctuary the candidate for initiation must pass, and after laying aside his own proper robe, must put on that which Cyrus the Elder used to wear before he became king. Then he must eat a cake of figs, chew some turpentine wood, and drink a cup of sour milk. Whatever else is done besides this is unknown to outsiders. The goddess described here is probably Anahita, a very important divinity we haven't talked a whole lot about up to this point. But A, she'll be utterly inescapable from this point forward, and B, she's one of the few female Yazadas that fits the bill. In Greco-Roman sources, she's typically identified with Aphrodite and Venus, and she fits that description too. But that identification was made in part through earlier Persian and Mesopotamian practices identifying Anahita with Ishtar, the Akkadian goddess of love, sex, fertility, and war. Regardless of her actual origins, Anahita absorbed a lot of Ishtar's characteristics in the Achaemenid period. The sanctuary itself may be the heavily fortified structure north of Pasargadai, known as Taletakht, the Hill of the Throne, which seems to have originated as a fortress sometime before Cyrus the Great's conquests, but it bears a close resemblance to a later Parthian sanctuary nearby. The robe of Cyrus the Elder was probably the traditional Elamite robe used in royal iconography, even as typical Iranian riding clothes became more common in formal settings. If you're not sure what I mean, picture an Achaemenid king. That robe. The rest of the ceremony was probably immensely order was probably immensely older than Cyrus the Great. Mashed fruit cake, turpentine wood, and sour milk all derive from the life of steppe nomads, like the Persians' long-forgotten Indo-Iranian ancestors. As Plutarch is the only source of information we do have, the rest of the ceremony is still unknown, but we can probably infer that there were some religious rites, probably some Avestan prayers involving Kshatra, the Amesha Spenta, who bestows divine right to rule. From there, Artaxerxes was supposed to enter an interior chamber of the palace alone, and reflect on this moment before entering into a public, or at least visible to the court, phase of ceremonies. But he was suddenly interrupted while still in the sanctuary of Anahita. Uninvited and violating ancient and sacred royal ceremonies, Tissaphernes burst in. The ex-satrap of Lydia and current local governor of Caria was accompanied by an odd companion, one of the magi from the palace school. This magos had briefly been one of Cyrus the Younger's tutors during his accelerated course through the young boy's portion of his schooling. Artaxerxes would almost certainly have been concerned and afraid at this point. Tissaphernes was his brother's vassal, and this Megos was an outspoken member of the Cyrus for King party at court. Of course, it was an open secret that Tissaphernes despised Cyrus, but then again, 
If Cyrus became king, Lydia would need a new satrap. But any fear was quickly dismissed. With an open supporter of Cyrus to back up his accusations, Tissaphernes informed Artaxerxes that it was not safe for him to continue the ceremony. Cyrus himself had infiltrated the old palace and was lying in wait in the next room, plotting to assassinate his elder brother. The sources diverge a little bit here, more or less in line with how pro-Cyrus the writer was. So it's not overly clear whether or not Cyrus was ever actually in the palace. But the younger brother was definitely detained by Artaxerxes' bodyguard. Plutarch implies that Artaxerxes planned a summary execution that day. Xenophon suggests that Cyrus was imprisoned with the execution slated for some time after the coronation. Theseus even gives Cyrus the opportunity to flee to his mother's estate before being caught. Of these options, I actually think Theseus deserves the most credence. Plutarch was removed by these events by several centuries. Xenophon was heavily biased towards Cyrus and probably didn't advertise to Greek mercenaries that he ran to his mommy. Theseus, on the other hand, was actually there, like literally, physically, in the royal retinue, possibly Parasadus's personal entourage, during this debacle in 404. But more on him later. Once he was in custody, Cyrus the Younger's only reprieve from the executioner was his mother. By all accounts, Parasadus threw herself between Cyrus and her jailers, crying and begging for her first son to spare her second. Ahura Mazda only knows what she said, presumably something to the effect of, I know you must hate me, but if you have any love for your mother, or this isn't what your father would have wanted, or maybe something more politically pragmatic, like killing Cyrus will turn Sparta against us right after giving them literal boatloads of money. Regardless, Artaxerxes granted his brother clemency on the single condition that he would go back to his posting at Skeranos in Anatolia with the understanding that any hint of rebellion against Artaxerxes would be the end. And Cyrus did just that. He sat quietly, probably right next to Parasadus, as the coronation ceremony played out according to plan. And then, he gathered up his own retinue and rode home. And for a time, that was the end of it. After some mild family drama, the reign of Artaxerxes II, King of Kings, began in earnest. Aside from renewed hostility with the would-be pharaoh Amirtaeus in the western Nile Delta, the empire was quiet. So Artaxerxes monitored that situation from afar, either writing to the elderly satrap Arsames or some unnamed successor. Domestically, Artaxerxes cultivated a reputation for generosity, honesty, and openness, at least partially a reaction to the heavy taxes and conflict that had characterized the previous generation. Plutarch reports two probably apocryphal stories, but they at least paint a picture of Artaxerxes' reputation. When the king was traveling, it was traditional for villagers in western Iran to run up to his chariot and offer him gifts. 
Artaxerxes would always praise these gifts far in excess of what they were actually worth. According to one story, an extremely poor man saw Artaxerxes riding past and lacked anything to actually offer the king. He ran to the river and brought Artaxerxes water, cupped in the man's own hands. Plutarch says that Artaxerxes was so taken by the offering that he gave this man a golden cup to carry his water, and a thousand derricks. This story is, at best, exaggerated, because while the cup may have been a life-changing and obviously symbolic reward, a thousand derricks comes to around 800 times the annual wage of a peasant laborer. Or who knows, maybe Artaxerxes really did turn a beggar into a remarkably rich man. This generous streak may have been part of the same program or movement as his wife's preference to travel in an open carriage, where the public could see her. Whilst Atera made an effort to be seen, Artaxerxes made an effort to be seen as giving, and in the eyes of their subjects, they were remembered as a unique spectacle. Artaxerxes was noted for his lenience, but it was not unlimited. According to Plutarch, when the Spartan ambassador at court got a little too bold for his sarcastic and laconic jokes at the king's expense, he sent one of the immortals to the Greek with a message. It is in your power to say whatever you want, but it is in my power both to say and to do. Wink, wink. Even then, Plutarch also notes that Artaxerxes put a stop to the gleefully cruel and vindictive punishments preferred by his mother and their ancestors. No more trial by boats, no more burn to death in hot ashes, no more live burials. It would just be the simple, kinder punishments for Artaxerxes, like crucifixion, impaling, or dismemberment. And now we can turn back to Theseus for a minute. It's at this point that we can say with near certainty that Theseus, who has been kicking around as a source since way back in episode 2, began traveling with the Persian court. There is a segment of scholarship that still argues that because his version of early Persian history is so inaccurate that he couldn't have actually been there at all. But that is starting to die out. Achaemenid historians with more familiarity with ancient Near Eastern and later Iranian traditions generally recognize that much of Theseus's Persica reflects the storytelling traditions that would have been common at the Achaemenid court. According to tradition, he served at the Persian court for 17 years, which would mean he had to arrive late in the reign of Darius II, because he wasn't involved in events we'll discuss in due course. However, that 17-year number doesn't come from ancient sources, and he became prominent at court under Artaxerxes. Theseus's exact origins are unknown. He was a physician, a medical doctor, born and educated in Kos, an island off the coast of Caria, and a center of Greek medicine. He was born a Persian subject in an extremely technical sense, since his home was one of those cities that the Delian League was graciously permitted to rule prior to the recent Ionian War. It was also, coincidentally, 
captured by the Spartan fleet, and returned to the Persian government early in the war. 411, to be precise. Some scholars have suggested that Theseus went east under his own initiative, but given the timeline, it seems much more likely that he was taken to court as a prisoner of war. For the 17-year mark to work, the most likely scenario is that Theseus was captured on Kos in 411 and held as a slave by the Spartans for three years before being taken to Darius II as tribute in 408 when the Spartans had to go explain all their problems with Tissaphernes and Pharnabazus in person. If not then, the most likely time for Theseus to arrive was right now. From Kos in 411, he would have made his way into the household staff of the Lydian satrap, ultimately serving Cyrus the Younger for a few years before joining the full court in 404, possibly given to Parasadus by Cyrus, still as a slave, or as part of a larger crowd of prisoners, where Theseus's skills were noticed later. Either way, after Artaxerxes II took the throne, Theseus quickly found himself serving the highest echelons of the Persian royal family, as Artaxerxes and Parisatus' personal physician. That makes him invaluable to the next phase of our story, as for the first time ever, we have an eyewitness who wrote a detailed history, even if it is only known through fragments today. Shockingly, he will be joined by another eyewitness source. But that is a story for next time, when I'll discuss King Cyrus III. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree down to the time of Alexander, and most importantly, the support page. That's where you can find places to donate with one-time payments or Patreon, where you can subscribe with a monthly subscription to get access to things like bonus episodes and ad-free listening. You can also find me on social media at History of Persia on Twitter or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.